Again, that's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Hear God's word. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray as we expect God's blessing from his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see wonderful things from your law, that as we do come now, to hear your voice from the Gospel of Luke, that we would see Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior, and that we would cling to him, that he really would be our delight, and that his claims on our life would be ones that we rejoice in and that we obey. We pray that you would do this work through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The sermon this morning is coming from Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, here, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen.
When I was a kid, one of the things that we did pretty frequently is we actually went out to the movies. My dad would take me out to the movies. And we'd kind of settle into those nice, comfortable seats, and, and the lights in the theater would dim. But before the main movie started would be the previews, and sometimes I actually like the previews better than the movie. But those previews, it's really hard to actually make a good preview because you're trying to take this, this big story full of details and characters and you're trying to just boil it down to just a few minutes. And you're trying to do it in a way that really catches people's attention and draws them back so that they'll come and they'll actually watch that movie another day. Well, our passage this morning is, is like a pre taking a, a few moments, a few moments of a much bigger story, much bigger realities, boiling it down to the essence. And what God is doing in these verses is he is giving us a preview of who Jesus is and what he will do. Actually, in the, in the larger context of Luke 9, that's one of the main questions that has been coming up time and time again. Who is Jesus? That's the first question of the chapter, and the second one is very much related to that. If this is Jesus, if you can answer that first question, then the second question is, what does it mean to follow him? That's what Luke 9 as a whole has really been asking. And the disciples, in each of the events along the way, have been learning more about that answer, especially that first question, who is Jesus? And in the verses today, God speaks even more clearly to answer that question. What Jesus is shown to be and what God is teaching us is that Jesus is unique. He has a unique identity and he has a unique work. And that identity and work calls for our response. So God is showing us Jesus' unique identity and Jesus' unique work and he calls for our response. The way that this, this passage is set out, it's really structured around revelation and response. God does something or says something, and then the apostles respond. So we're going to actually take a look at it this way. We're going to look at God's revelation and then how the apostles respond. And we see that it happens once, and then it happens twice. So first, God reveals Jesus to be the superior Savior. We actually see that in the very beginning in verses 28 to 31. Then the apostles respond. Then God comes again and he reveals Jesus to be the speaking son. And then the apostles respond. So let's start first then with God's revelation of Jesus as the superior Savior. Again, that's how this passage opens in 28 to 31. But before we get into the action, our passage is actually pointing us back. Luke says, now about eight days after these sayings, all these things are about to happen. That is not just a time marker of just like, don't get lost, we're about a week later from whatever I just told you. That's actually a very intentional way of pointing you back to what those sayings were. What was Jesus just teaching about? Well, Jesus has actually just taught the apostles that he is the Son of Man and that he is a suffering Son of Man. He has to experience that suffering before he'll experience glory. But Jesus has also been teaching the apostles and the crowds, it's not just about me, it's about you too. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you expect that same pattern for you. Suffering first 
and then glory. That's what Jesus has just been teaching in the previous days. And Luke is pointing us back there because he's saying what's just about to happen, what we're just about to see, that new revelation of Jesus' identity and Jesus' work, that's actually to confirm everything Jesus has just said. Now, the first sign that anything really unusual is happening is, is actually really dramatic. As Jesus prays to his Father, it says in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. What's happening in this description is it's showing us this is really Jesus' glory being revealed. This is Jesus' heavenly glory. You may remember other places in the Bible with similar descriptions. For instance, you can think of Moses when he goes to meet God. When he comes out of the tent of meeting, what is his face like? His face is shining. He is shining after having met God. Or actually later in Luke, when they go to the empty tomb, they see these angels. And how is it described? That they have these clothes that are dazzlingly... In those cases, in Moses and the angels... That, that shining, that dazzling is a reflection of the glory of heaven. Really the glory of God. And that's what we see with Jesus here. Is he is showing the glory he has. But it's not just the glory he has as the Son. He has glory, right? As the Son of God. But the glory he's showing us here is different. He's showing us actually the glory he has as the Savior. What the apostles are seeing here is a preview. They're actually seeing the glory that Jesus will have as the Savior when his work is done. Jesus has actually just taught the crowds about that very glory. He says, I'm going to return, and when I return, I'm coming in my glory, and the Father's glory, and the glory of many angels. That's the glory that Jesus is showing here, because at that point, when he returns, when he comes again, salvation will be totally complete. All of his people will be saved. At that point he will then raise all of his people and then all of his people will join him in heaven. That is the glory of the Savior when his work is done. But when Jesus is on this mountain here, he's not done yet. He isn't at that point. So we are getting a preview, a look ahead to Jesus' coming glory. We see the end of the story, actually of the entire Bible in these few brief verses. Now that that focus that Luke shows, that focus on Jesus' glory as the Savior is emphasized by who's there. Notice that it's Moses and Elijah who are talking with Jesus. Now it's important who they are, who Moses and Elijah are, but it's also very important what they say as they meet with Jesus. Let's start with who they are. Who are these two men and why are they so important? Well, Moses and Elijah, on the broadest level, are are representatives. They're representing, not just themselves, they're actually representing the entire Old Testament. If you think of Moses, Moses is the one who represents the law. He gave the law on Mount Sinai. And Elijah, in a sense, is the great prophet. He is that one that actually God promises will come. So you have the law and the prophets represented in these two men. This is the whole Old Testament. And really, remember that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus and Jesus as the Savior. 
That's what Jesus tells us later in Luke 24. It's all about me. So these two men here show that the Old Testament now is being fulfilled in the man that they are talking to, Jesus Christ. So they are representatives of the whole Old Testament, but actually in their specific roles in the Old Testament, they had a very special job in pointing forward to Jesus and his work of salvation. Moses is, I think, pretty obvious there. Think of Moses. What is Moses known for? Well, Moses is known for the Exodus and then the law. Think of the Exodus. This is, the, the I think, the clearest picture in the entire Old Testament about the work of salvation that God saves his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, to then serve him. So Moses, and all that he was doing, was pointing forward clearly to Jesus the Savior. But actually, the, the same thing goes for Elijah, that Elijah also had a special role in the Old Testament. Remember the book of Malachi, that last book of the Bible, pointing us forward to the coming Savior, God promises to send Elijah again before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, we know Jesus himself says that that prophecy is fulfilled in part by John the Baptist. He is that new Elijah. But actually, as we're here on the mountain, we see Elijah again. And that is telling us that this awesome day of the Lord that's been promised is coming because Elijah's here now. So we see actually that this day of salvation and judgment is right around the corner. And that day of salvation and judgment is the day that Jesus is going to begin. So that's who they are, and that's important, but also what they say is very important. Moses and Elijah, when they come, they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You may notice in your Bible there's a little footnote, at least in mine, about the word departure. If you look down at the bottom, in the original language, this word is exodus. I think that's really, really significant. Again, because in the Old Testament, the exodus is one of the clearest pictures of God's salvation. And now we have Moses and Elijah speaking about Jesus' exodus. They're speaking about Jesus' work of accomplishing salvation, rescuing his people, not from physical slavery, but rescuing us from sin and Satan and bringing us, again, not just into a physical land, but all the way to heaven. They are talking about what Jesus must do, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. These opening verses here are really meant to show us that Jesus is the superior Savior. He is the Savior that Moses and Elijah are pointing forward to. And actually, all of the Old Testament points forward to. Moses and Elijah and anybody else in the Old Testament was just a sign, just a picture of what was to come. But here in Jesus on the mountain, we see the reality. That salvation that was pictured in the Exodus and promised And the coming day of the Lord is now shown to be right around the corner in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is shown by God to be the superior Savior. 
But how do the apostles respond? Look at verses 32 to 33. How do they respond to the greatest revelation they have ever experienced? Well, they misunderstand what they see. What they're trying to do as they watch this is they try to preserve the moment instead of understanding that unique significance of Jesus that the moment is supposed to be teaching them. Let me show you how this is true. Notice first, the three men are sleeping when the event begins. It's very interesting. Verse 32, they are heavy with sleep. And when they wake up, they see Moses and Elijah in glory, and they see their Savior. But despite all that they're seeing, I mean, imagine waking up to that. But like, despite all that they're looking at, they're still spiritually asleep. Because they don't understand what they're looking at. They see with their eyes, but they do not understand. In verse 33, here's an example of this. Moses and Elijah, they're on their way out. They're kind of saying farewell to Jesus. But when Peter sees this, he immediately springs into action. His plan, he comes up with a brilliant plan on the spot. I'm going to build three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, so that everyone can stay. And on one level, I think it's hard to criticize Peter because this is one of the most dramatic moments of his life. You, gotta, you have to understand this. His master is shining with that heavenly glory. And right before his eyes are Moses and Elijah. He's been reading about these men from his childhood. These are two of the most important people from the Old Testament, and they're right in front of him. Peter wants to preserve what he's seeing and experiencing. But um, as Luke makes clear, Peter does not understand what he is saying. Peter's plan has massive problems. Just think of the first one. If they stay on top of the mountain together, then salvation will not happen. Remember, they're talking about the exodus that must take place at Jerusalem. If they stay here, Jesus will not accomplish the promised salvation. But there's another problem, because Peter is actually trying to preserve something that God wants to be temporary. Notice that detail again. Moses and Elijah are leaving. That's actually one of the points of this entire Revelation. At the end of this scene, it's just Jesus who is left. Look at verse 36. God is making a point that's very clear. Jesus is superior. Jesus is unique. You don't need all those signs in the Old Testament. You have the reality now. Maybe I can put it another way. What Peter essentially is doing is he is trying to preserve an Old Testament vision when what God is pointing him toward is he's saying that Jesus is greater than anything in the Old Testament. Don't look back. Look forward. To learn. Well, God actually then graciously and majestically responds to the apostles' confusion and misunderstanding with another dramatic act of revelation. Verses 34 to 35, God steps in again and he reveals Jesus now to be the speaking son. This next revelation goes actually even beyond what he's done before, beyond the presence of Moses and Elijah, because now God himself comes and he speaks directly to these men. And he speaks to confirm who Jesus is and to command those men and us in light of who he is. Let's look at verse 34. As Peter was saying these things, so as he's talking about this plan, 
a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This, this is clearly no ordinary cloud. No, this is a cloud of God's presence. Again, in the Old Testament, God is often present with people through a cloud. Remember the book of Exodus, the cloud which represented God's presence rested on the tabernacle and he actually guided them with that cloud through every step of the journey into Canaan. God's presence would be amazing, but the apostles experience even more because God speaks. Verse 35, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God is identifying Jesus here as his son and as his chosen one. Both of those titles, a son and chosen one, those are messianic. This is talking about the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the one who will save his people from their sins. Now we know that Jesus is God's son. He is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But when Jesus is called God's son here, God is referring to Jesus as his son in the role of savior. Think for instance of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the whole psalm is really about the rule of the coming Messiah. And sonship is very, very important in that psalm. Verse 7 This is what God says to his son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. If you look further in that same psalm, verse 8 through 9, this son will rule the world. And that last verse, allegiance to the son, is commanded and blessing is promised. So when God tells the apostles here that Jesus is his son, God is telling them that this Jesus is the Messiah who will rule all creation for God. Well, God also calls Jesus his chosen one. And that chosen one is also referring to Jesus as the Savior. The title comes from Isaiah 42, one of the servant songs. We read it it earlier in the service. Here's what God says. He says, Behold my servant whom whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and notice, he will bring forth justice to the nations. So do you hear the similarity actually between Psalm 2 and then again in Isaiah 42? Both are speaking of the Messiah as the king of the entire world. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the rule that is promised here. And we know that Jesus' rule actually begins in a fuller way in his resurrection and ascension. And he is ruling right now as we sit here. Jesus is ruling as the successful, exalted Savior. But again, when God tells the apostles about this, when he speaks to them here, Jesus' work isn't done yet. But God's promise here is that Jesus' work will be completed and that he will be reigning as he is right now. Salvation is guaranteed, and the rule of the Messiah is guaranteed. But God isn't done yet with the apostles. He is not done yet in his work of revelation. He leaves them with this command, listen to him. Listen to Jesus because he is my son. Listen to him because he is my chosen one. Jesus has the authority and right to speak and because he is God's son 
and God's servant. Let me give you an Old Testament connection to back this up. Moses promised that God would send a prophet like him. If you think about uh, Deuteronomy 18, this prophet would come to speak for God and the people must listen to him. The wording actually in Deuteronomy 18 is almost identical to what God himself says here about Jesus. And if the people did not listen to this coming prophet, God would judge them. That's what he warns. And that promised prophet is Jesus. So if the apostles do not listen to him and accept his teaching as the word of God, then God will judge them. In the context of Luke chapter 9, what has Jesus been teaching? Remember, he's been teaching again that he is that suffering dying and rising son of man that the cross must come before the crown and that is not just true of him that is true of every single believer who follows him Jesus is requiring his disciples to follow the same pattern maybe I can put it another way that what what is required by listening to Jesus we must listen to and accept what Jesus says about who he is and then about who we are this is not just true for the apostles back then. This is true for us. We must accept what Jesus teaches. We must believe when he says that we are sinners and that apart from God's work of salvation, we are bound for hell. We must accept that he is, as he has said, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. We really must accept and believe that he died on the cross for our sins and that in him and in him alone we can have the forgiveness and the fellowship with God again that we need. And just as much as the warning applied to the apostles, the warning applies to us as well. We must listen to the speaking son, the fullest revelation of God or face judgment. Well, how do the apostles respond? Now they have heard from God. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Jesus was found alone. This was the same Jesus they had just come up. Just a few hours ago, they had walked to the top of that mountain. But now as they see him alone, they can never look at him in the same light again. They have seen Jesus with their own eyes seen him with the glory that he will receive when his work of salvation is completed. They have seen him as the Savior who far surpasses anything in the Old Testament. And they've seen him as the one who is specially chosen by God to save his people, to rule the world, and to speak with his own authority. Jesus standing alone on the mountain is really the whole point of this revelation. The preview is over now. But that glorious identity and work of Jesus has been on full display and now will shape and change the apostles as they go forward. But how do they respond? How would you have responded if you had seen those things and heard those things on that day? Well, it might be surprising because the disciples are silent. They don't say anything about what they have seen. In fact, they stay silent during all of those of Jesus' ministry on earth. And we know actually part of the reason, because if we look at Mark and again at Matthew, Jesus specifically tells his disciples 
Don't say anything yet until all my work is done, until after I am raised. So the apostle's silence is actually a result of Jesus' command. But Jesus' command in part is a command of mercy and grace because it's related to the apostles' confusion. Just a few verses later, Jesus again teaches them about his death. He says, I must die, and they did not understand what he meant. Very clear that they do not know what they have just seen. They do not know what they have just heard and what they have just learned. And they will only understand the significance of this vision only after they've seen further down the story when Jesus is actually raised from the dead. Once they've seen the resurrected Jesus, all the pieces start to fit into place. I think it is a little bit like building a puzzle. If I gave you a puzzle, especially one of those big ones, a thousand pieces, if I gave you that puzzle, I said, you're going to build this puzzle, take all the pieces out, and I'm going to let you look at the box, and I'm going to put it away. Well, that would make building the puzzle really hard. You would have the picture in your mind of what it's supposed to look like, but all the details are a little fuzzy. You don't know how this piece fits with this piece. But then, as the pieces fit together, what you get at the end is the exact same picture as what's on the box. Something similar is happening with the disciples. They have seen that picture. They've seen the picture on the box. But Jesus is now putting those pieces into place in his ministry and his teaching. And finally, when he is the resurrected son, then they see the whole picture and they understand how the parts fit. Then and only then will they be able to understand what they have seen and now be able to tell others the truth. That's how the apostles respond. They respond. Once they get it, later on, once they get it, they can't stop talking about it. That's actually one of the applications of this passage, that they and us, we have confidence. This is really confirmation of the gospel. One of the men standing here, Peter, he writes in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says that he is proclaiming the gospel. He and his companions are proclaiming the gospel specifically because they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. About after Jesus' resurrection, he specifically points right here on top of the mountain. This, this preview is what drives Peter to proclaim the gospel. None of us, none of us have seen Jesus like Peter did here. We have not actually seen him in his majesty and his glory. And yet this passage from Luke 9 confirms to us that the gospel is true. And it should actually push us then to proclaim Jesus Christ. Because we see a triumphant, glorious, and returning Savior. And that truth is worth sharing with everyone. Because everyone actually must listen to Jesus Christ, that Son and, his, and God's chosen one. So it gives us a confirmation and confidence in proclaiming the gospel, but this passage also gives us great confidence in living now because we see the glory of the Savior who rules the world. That means he's ruling right now. In every circumstance of the church, in every circumstance of your life, this, your Savior, is ruling, and he is at work extending the kingdom of God to the furthest parts of the earth, and he's extending the kingdom of God 
into the deepest parts of human hearts. This vision of Jesus, Jesus as the Savior who rules, gives us great confidence that that victory, that he promised that victory is actually won. And now every day we can live and we can fight and we can pray in the sure confidence of Jesus' power and of his victory. Just as we close, what Peter and James and John saw, what they saw so clearly and what we read here, it's just a preview, it's just a snapshot of Jesus' glory when he returns. As we serve and as we worship him now, look with confidence and really look with joy and anticipation when we will see him as he truly is, when we will see him coming back in glory and we will be with him and we will be made like him. That is something to look forward to as we see him here in this passage. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you that you have shown us who Jesus is. Thank you that you have shown us that he is our Savior and he is your Son. And we pray that we would follow him and worship him because of who he is. We know that this life that you have called us into is a life of suffering and then of glory, but suffering first. And even as we face difficulties in fighting sin and being tempted and even being persecuted at times, we pray that we would keep the resurrected reigning and returning Jesus as the center of our vision. We pray that you would change our hearts, that this is something we return to, that he is someone we love and serve and wait for. Reorient our lives to look toward the future and to wait for you when you return. pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.